We are so excited to announce that the Remedial Herstory Project will be having our first annual summer retreat coming to you in August of 2021. Join us here in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Kick back, relax, enjoy the spa and a little bit of women's history. We are so excited to be bringing some of the best women's historians in the world to you. They are here to teach you the bits of women's history that you may have missed in history class, and we are here to guide you on the tools that you will need to get them into the classroom. The retreat is 50% pedagogy and 50% women's history. You will leave with dozens of printed lesson plans, learning materials, and tools that you can use. You can see the entire schedule of events on our website, as well as the names of some of the historians who will be presenting www.remedialherstory.com. Look for the page about the summer retreat. Come relax and enjoy the White Mountains of New Hampshire with us. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be talking about the badass ladies over at Bletchley Park with Kate Quinn. author of a new book coming out called The Rose Code. Interesting. Okay, let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Small efforts, big moments, women at Bletchley Park. Okay. Brooke, do you know what Bletchley Park is? (laughs) Uh, No. So this was one of the places in the UK during the war where men and women worked to break Nazi codes and oh. to like do intelligence work um, to to fight like during... the CIA of the UK. Yeah, well, so they're trying to they are trying to break codes. So this is a special division that okay. is like specific for the war for code breaking. Yeah. Oh no, wait! I've seen this movie. Um, Kira Knightley. Yes. Yes. She's... Imitation game. Yes. It was really good. It was really good. Can Very you give me a quick recap? Uh, yeah, I watched it a long time ago. But I think the overall is that there is... Kira Knightley's character is partnered with this other guy um, who is also... Alan Turing yes. in history. Yeah. Okay. And they are working on breaking this code. They build this machine to help do it. Um, they get make it all the way through. They finally break the code. Not yeah. this is not a spoiler alert, right? Um, but it was done through a lot of belaboring effort and a lot of collaboration. But really, the two of them kind of just ran for it. Yeah. Well, they're trying to build this machine, right? Um, that is able to to. It's like the first computer, really. It's, it becomes really the first computer. Yeah. Um, and it's a very fascinating story. If you haven't seen this film, I highly recommend it. It's a really great one to show in your classes. It's actually a little piece of LGBTQ plus history because Absolutely. Alan Turing is gay and he... Um, 
he actually marries Kira Knightley's character in the show to try to like cover up. Yeah, she was his, his beard. Um, but he ends up committing suicide. Well, after they give him drugs to try to like drug the, drug the gay away from him. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a it's a pretty sad story. Um, in terms of that history, but it's also this like really, it shows like the brilliance of this man that he's able to build this computer to, um, to essentially defeat the Nazi code making, um, which every day they, they, they would crank yeah. out a new code and the poor code breakers, which turns out were mostly women are like frantically <laughs> trying to break this code within the 24 hours before that happens. And he builds a machine that can do it much quicker. Right. Um, so it's, it's a really cool, cool piece of history. And I'm so excited to sit down with, uh, Kate Quinn and I was able to talk with her about this book that she wrote and the amazing research that she did looking into women that were there. And, you know, it's interesting because having seen that film and, and knowing a bit about that history, mm-hmm. I, I, knew that women were there but like what they were doing and how essential they were to right. the work yeah. is a totally different layer so um why don't we start by having her introduce herself to our audience great hi my name is kate quinn i am the new york times best-selling author of books such as the alice network the huntress and most recently the rose code and i'm delighted to be here oh that's so exciting <laughs> Um, I am a big fan of you and I'm a big fan of your writing. So I'm so grateful to have you here today. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your new book that just came out? My new book is the Alice, uh, excuse me, I've been on tour for a while, can you tell? Um, Even if it's a virtual tour, it does tend to leave your brain a little bit mush. Uh, My new book, The Rose Code, tells the story of three very different women. A beautiful blue-blooded debutante, a tart-tongued London shop girl, and a shy crossword-solving spinster who are all recruited to the mysterious Bletchley Park, a secluded English country manor where the best and brightest minds in Britain work in direst secrecy, breaking Hitler's supposedly unbreakable military codes. That's it in a nutshell. Boom. What comes to mind is the film Imitation Game. Is that like correct ballpark for us to be in? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Imitation Game uh, was absolutely was a wonderful, I thought a wonderful treatment of, you know, what the atmosphere at Bletchley Park was like. And it gave a lot of very deserved light and highlighting to Alan Turing, you know, of course, who is known for his advances in computer science uh, after the war, but who during the war was one of the movers and shakers in Hut 8 at Bletchley Park, where specifically they broke the German naval codes, which were in a whole class of horrible and complicated all by themselves. And um, in the Alice Network, you also featured a few women in that book. So is this a, a theme in, in your writing style to to have multiple characters? Well, it's one of those things where authors tend to be asked quite a lot of the time, you know, where do you find your ideas? And I would say I most often, you know, find my ideas, it comes in the form of a light bulb going off in my head. And that light bulb is generally inspired by a either a woman or a group of women or an event in which women were involved in the past in which I have found something that I didn't know and something that completely wowed me that ladies of the past did or were involved in 
and which made me think I could hang a story on that. I want to shine a little bit of more light on these ladies because it seems to me that they deserve it. And that I did, this is usually something I did not learn in school and I wonder why, and I want to you know, do my part to help at least um, help their names shine a little bit brighter than they already do. Yeah, so how did you stumble upon, now are these three ladies based on real people or are they fictional? And how did you get to these, these particular women that you centered your book on? Well, I was, I, I was, have always been interested in Bletchley Park when I first heard about it. I mean, the whole idea of a, you know, English country house that's stuffed with oddball code breakers seemed to me like a, you know, an outlandish Hollywood pitch, you know, Downton Abbey versus sneakers, meet sneakers, but in World War II, you know, so that was always interesting to me. And I really got interested when I read Robert Harris's wonderful novel Enigma which was later made into a movie as well and I was even as I was reading that though I was wondering you know it's like these are the stories are mostly centering around the men in this world and you know the there were some really truly titanic male figures like Marian Rajewski and the Polish cryptographers who made the initial breaks into Enigma in the 30s then there's you know Alan Turing Gordon Welchman Dilly Knox these men you know obviously deserved every drop of ink that was written about them but at the same time I wanted to know what were the women doing because the fact is and here's something that I did not know initially when I began reading about Bletchley Park at its peak in 1945, there were 8,988 people working at Bletchley Park. 6,757 of those were women. So with that huge majority being women at, by the peak of intelligence operations at the park, what were those women doing? And I wanted to hear more about them. You know, what were their lives like? So therefore, I decided this book, when I first started you know, plotting out the Rose Code, was going to be a multiple narrator story, a number of women being involved whose, through whose eyes we would see the park's operations. And that was partly because I wanted the reader to walk away with an understanding of what the intelligence you know, chain was like in this place, because it really was like a big intelligence factory you know encryption encrypted material went in by the ton and then it sort of hit this huge conveyor belt and went through the park and its number of huts and then it came out the other end as you know decrypted intelligence that could be put to use by the brits in the field against the axis enemies so i wanted to give the reader an understanding of you know how that conveyor belt worked and to do that i would need to have multiple women who worked at different points in the process so therefore, I when I settled on my three women, I decided I would use have a cryptanalyst. Those were the uh, folks who really did the kind of fascinating work of throwing their brains against this wall of code and like wedging that foot in the door so that the machines would have a chance to you know be able to break it open the rest of the way. And then I knew I would have one of the women who worked on the famous uh, code breaking machines, the bomb machines, which were invented by Alan Turing. And then I knew I would have one of the women who was a translator who was taking this decrypted intelligence translating it in from German or Italian into uh, English so that it could be used. These seemed like some three pretty good representative points in which I could you know, station my heroines. And so after that, when I realized what kind of work I wanted them to do, I made the women themselves and I either fictionalized them uh, lightly from real historical figures in some cases, or I made his, made composites, fictional composites of real historical women. And that's how I ended up with my three particular heroines. 
Wow, that's really cool. Um, I first of all, I'm blown away by that data that you threw out of how many women were there. That's not just a majority. That's like almost everyone there was female. That's wild. Um, and I really like your approach to getting, you know, representative women from the different points along along the journey of intelligence work. I'm. Well, I, mean, I realized I really couldn't have one woman showing showing everything because the secrecy at Bletchley Park was so dire. Um, you were not, if you worked there, you were not even supposed to be looking up from your desk at what the person in the next desk was doing or the next room. And if you were, you know, say working at hut eight, you would have no idea what went on in hut six. You might have, you know, be able to make some educated guesses simply because you worked where you did. And if you were even remotely observant, you could probably make some guesses, but you weren't supposed to ask questions. So I realized if I had one woman working in the park, she's not going to be able to be asking her friends at the end of the day. So how did your day go? What did you do? You know, they would have said none of your business and you know it. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, you know, this isn't completely ironclad. There was some more information trading at the park than that would indicate but even so, I realized there was no way one woman could show everything that was happening there or even more than maybe a little bit out, outside her immediate field of vision. So that's why, you know, really in the end, you know, realistically, I had to have more than one woman, even you know, I settled on three. It could have easily been five or six, except then this book would be really long. So I'm curious how you, um, I'm, I, so I'm reading, uh, or I just finished reading Code Girls, which is another history book that just came out recently about women who worked in intelligence back in the States. And um, one thing that struck me was that most of them were college educated uh, teachers who, you know, were recruited by the CIA or whatever to come help engage in, in code breaking work. And they were asked ridiculous questions by recruiters like, do you like math and do you like crossword puzzles? <laughs> and so I'm just curious what you learned about the women that ended up at Bletchley Park and like how they got into that place? Well, recruitment at Bletchley was very haphazard, especially at the beginning. Um, it began with a group of men who were, you know, taken from mathematics tutorials and courses in Cambridge and Oxford, you know, the highest levels of, you know, English education. And then they, once they realized they were going to need more minds, they began pulling from the people that they knew. Because you, trustworthiness was really at paramount, even more than the kind of experience you brought to the table. So it was about who could vouch for who at the beginning. And then, so people, you had people pulling in from their friends, from their old schools, you know, the old school tie really was a big pull for, you know, how people were recruited then, but they realized they were going to need more than men because so many men were, you know, queuing up to go off to fight. And so therefore they started pulling from women's colleges and they started with the colleges simply because, you know, sister colleges at Oxford and Cambridge and so forth, it seemed like the right place to start. They started pulling quite a bit from, um, there are a number of, you know, rather startlingly highbrow girls, you know, ex-debutantes and so forth, who were recruited because they had language skills, because it was quite common for, you know, if a girl was going to take her curtsy at the at court, she probably spent a summer off in Munich getting, you know, her finishing school German polished. 
or you know her finishing school French in Paris. So you had women who were recruited for language abilities. And then after a while, you know, things moved down the level and you started having women recruited from secretarial courses and so forth, simply because there needed to be a lot of worker bees who were doing things, the filing, the sorting, the annotating, the uh, decoding, that stuff that really requires, you know, attention to detail and accuracy. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, I think if a woman's been in a kitchen being told, you know, it's like, no, you have to exactly measure the sugar, or if she's been doing her basting, you know, sewing for a long time, you know, exactly measuring up those patterns, believe me, she can figure out a bamboo sheet and absolutely match up those holes and, you know, see exactly where the overlap is, you know, attention to detail and fiddly, fiddly, tiny stuff is the kind of thing that, you know, a lot of women were actually quite well prepared for just in different, in different uh, domestic fields. So it's the kind of thing that a lot of the recruitment happened, you know, first based on first based on trustworthiness and who knew who and who could vouch for you. And then based on, you know, education levels, what did you have to bring to the table? They did find that certain kinds of minds tended to be good at code breaking in particular. Um, math minds, chess players. We had a number, there were a number of champion chess players who were recruited to work at the park. Music minds tended to work there rather well too. Linguistics, people who were good with words. Um, so you, you had some odd recruits like, you know, actresses who were recruited because, you know, they had linguistic capabilities and, you know, the ability to really think their way around words. So, you know, really recruitment could be quite amazingly haphazard. And, you know, some people ended up at the park simply because, well, I knew her father and he's really trustworthy and, you know, there, we need somebody trustworthy to slot in. So I'm sure his daughter would keep her mouth shut. So why don't we give her a call? <laughs> it could literally be as simple as that. So really there, you know, people were vetted, you know, once their names were, you know, brought up, they were vetted. I think it was MI5 that did a lot of the vetting, but at the same time also, they really needed bodies. They really needed brains. They were pulling people from all over. And eventually there ended up being more women than men simply because more men probably wanted to fight than wanted to, you know, sit behind a desk. And that ended up being a bit of a, a bit of a hard thing for some of the men who were recruited and um, realized that now, once they knew about this incredibly secret thing, there was no way they were going to be allowed to go off and fight and put on an actual uniform. But that's, you know, a different kind of problem for the guys in the story. So Brooke, Let's take a short break, Ugh. and we'll be right back. Fine. <laughs> the Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. Our goal is to create free learning materials for educators to use tomorrow. Head over to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. Download everything and give it to a friend. We need women's history in the classroom like yesterday. If you're not a history teacher and you want to do something to help us out, head over to our store. We've got all sorts of fun things for you to peruse and all of that goes to supporting our mission. If you think what we're doing is needed, you can support the Remedial History Project by becoming a sponsor through Anchor or becoming a patron. Patrons get access to behind the scenes materials, gear, bonus episodes, and more. Most importantly, they're putting their money where their mouth is and helping us get women's history into the classroom. Our history maker, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Christian, Brooke, and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie, Kent, Jenna, and Nancy. And our history allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Anne, and Alicia. Thank you so much. You all make this show possible. 
So what are some of the more interesting uh, like historical stories that you learned or um, maybe facts or details that you included in your story that about life at Letchley Park and, um, and what, yeah, what, what did you, so these women get there and I'm just curious sort of what are, what are they doing and how are they contributing to this effort at, at Bletchley Park? Well, they slotted into all the different kinds of jobs that one could do. You know, um, it was all women who worked the code breaking machines. Oh, those were women from largely from the Royal Naval Society um, called Wrens. And that was a, and that was something that was, you know, tremendously important as far as keeping the machines humming. There are women doing the translating, women doing the decoding. Um, not as many women in administration or in the uh, high level cryptanalyst positions. But still, even despite that, you know, and there, yes, there was a pay problem. Women did not tend to be paid quite as much. But even despite that, I would say one of the things that really impressed me about Bletchley Park was that there was a real sense that what mattered was the work. And there was a sense of a greater sense of equality and acceptance among the people who worked there because there, when you were recruiting a lot of code breakers and, um, you are, are the kinds of people who make good code breakers, the odds are you're gonna recruit a number of oddballs. And you're gonna recruit people who, at least by today's, today's analysis are probably neurodivergent. They wouldn't have used that term back then, uh, neurodivergent, neurotypical, but you would have found people who are on the neurodivergent scale of things. And there was a real sense there that if, if you were recruiting all these square pegs, you didn't require them to fit into round holes. They were allowed to just be square pegs if it got the work done. So there was more of a sense of elasticity and acceptance as far as um, accepting weird personalities. And the fact that, you know, women spoke fondly about the fact that they could feel heard there, that their voices were valued and that if you had a good idea, people would listen to it because what mattered was the work and it didn't matter where that good idea came from, it would be heard. So that was the kind of thing I really did like about the park was there was more of a egalitarian sense of, of community there as far as the value of the voices being heard. And the other thing that I really did enjoy was the fact that there was this thriving social life that popped up around the park because Really, the work was incredibly stressful. It was not physically uh, stressful because, you know, they were in the countryside in Buckinghamshire. Uh, Bletchley Park was never targeted by bombers. Physically speaking, the code breakers were safe, but mentally this work took a real toll. You know, it, it was the secrecy that they labored under, the fact you could not tell your family, your friends, your spouse, your children, no one what you were doing. It was the fact that, you know, people were very much aware that if you failed to break into a cipher, that could have very real reaction consequences for people on the ground thousands of miles away. And so you had these kinds of emotional strain, emotional stress, paranoia, insomnia, emotional breakdowns, you know, all kinds of things really were, you know, affecting the code breakers in their ability to work. And so therefore you had this social life pop up because they realized they would need to blow off steam. So they worked hard, they played hard. And there were all these, you know, fun, quirky clubs that came up, you know, a cinema club, Highland dancing being done on the lawn in front of the mansion, you know, and what I created in my book was a, um, was a reading club. You know, I had a literary society come up because, I, you know, you have a lot of people who are bookish who enjoy, and who are educated and who enjoy their reading. So you have a literary society comes up as well. 
And I had a lot of fun with that because, you know, really the, the social life of the park seemed quite rich. And again, you know, sort of enriched by all those, you know, quirky personalities that inhabited there. And so that was really one of the fun things that I did find about uh, my research is just how many cool, interesting things people were doing in their off time, as well as on their shift. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I really like thinking about, you know, all these really unique for their time period women who probably ended up there and, um, you know, without a lot of outlets. And I feel like so many times in history, this, the narrative is they were, you know, really smart, but the society didn't accept them and how cool that they had an outlet and were listened to and felt respected in that, in that line of work. So I think that's really a special history you've tapped into. Well, I, I know a number of the women did speak a little wistfully, you know, th that they weren't likely to find a job like that after the war. Or if they did, it would often have to be later in life after maybe they'd had their children and their children had grown. You know, families, again, took precedence. And so it's that kind of balance that women have always been struggling to find between, you know, family and work. And, you know, here at least you had this point in their lives when, um, you know, this is mostly single women or, uh, you know, they might be married, but not, no children yet. And they had this point in which they could contribute to the fight. And that was important to them, you know, because, you know, we read in history, you know, it's like, of course, Hitler never invaded England. But at this point, when Bletchley Park was getting going, the threat of invasion from Germany was seen as not just a possibility, but a probability. You had a lot of people who were trying not to think about, but definitely expecting that, you know, by this time next year, we might see panzers rolling down, you know, rolling through Piccadilly Circus. You know, we might see, you know, German street names tacked up over the London street names and that this, you know, they're making preparations for that. It's an incredibly scary time to be in Britain. And so you had the women too, who were like, well, what can I do? And there were certainly a number of them and I had included my heroines among them who they wanted to do something more than just the expected, well, serve coffee in a canteen or roll bandages or, you know, enroll in one of the women's services or be a land girl. What else can I do? I've got a brain. How can I use it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is, this becomes their fight in a way that, you know, women get the opportunity to fight in wars and they get silver lining opportunities in wars that they don't get in peacetime. And, you know, of course I am not saying that, well, there should be a war just to provide women opportunities, but it is a, it is a consequence that women get the opportunity for jobs that they wouldn't ordinarily been able to step into, or they get the opportunity to, to you know, fight physically in a way that they wouldn't be able to. Um, wars give women chances, and they always have. The question is, after the war, can you hang on to what you have achieved, or are you going to be required to take a step back? So what did, uh, what did you get into? I haven't finished your book yet. So at the end of the book, do your characters find life afterwards or are they sent to the domestic sphere? <laughs> they all, at the, well, you know, this is a dual timeline book. So you will see them during the war years. And then you also see uh, a flash ahead to 1947, which is the countdown to the Royal wedding of uh, Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And this is when my code-breaking ladies who have not seen each other in years are being pulled back together to dust off some of those old skills because, you know, a threat has come out of the woodwork. And when you first see these ladies in 1947, they are all to some degree frustrated. Uh, some 
and I won't, no spoilers here, but they are all to some degree frustrated by, you know, they're, this is a very different world from the war world. And to some, this is a matter of, you know, life and death, you know, I have to break free of this, or I feel like I'm going to die. To some, this is a matter of numbness almost because there can be a sense of like I want to escape back into the de that domestic sphere because the war exhausted me and wore me out and made me grieve and if I can just escape back into more of a family life I'll be happy to do so but how long is that numbness going to last and then there is the sense for some others that you know it's like really I proved I could do more than this during the war are you really saying I can't do keep on using that the kind of skills that I had, you know, that I proved myself then and it, it counts for nothing now. So they're all frustrated to some degree in 1947. And I like to think they all find something better by the end of that, but you will have to you know, finish up to find out. Wow, that's really awesome. Well, um, I would love to know just any other, uh, his, you know, you know so much more about this because obviously you researched it. So what are some anecdotes or details that you feel like people should know about this history? You know, you mentioned earlier, like, I wish I learned more about these women and, you know, I will learn more about women in history. So, you know, what are some of those things that you wish history teachers had taught you um, or that, you know, you wish you had learned as a kid? Just like to have learned more about Bludgley Park uh, and the, the code breaking operations and how central women were to that part of the fight. And so that would have been a fun thing to discuss, you know, just as far as my high school history classes were involved. And I think an important part of Bletchley Park is that, and uh, something I would have really appreciated learning as a kid is really how critical intelligence was to winning the war. Bletchley Park's success, the fact that they were literally reading the Axis mail, their battle plans, their personal telegrams, that was a huge contribution to the war's success. Um, without the victories of Bletchley Park, maybe we would have lost, or maybe the war would simply have dragged out for several more years and millions more lives lost. This was a huge part of the success, and yet I think a lot of times there's a more simplistic narrative about World War II that it's all about, you know, storming the beaches at Normandy and keeping calm and carrying on through the bomb, the bomb falling and through the occupations that, you know, it's about physical endurance and physical courage. And, you know, that is true. I'm not downplaying those contributions, but at the same time, I love the idea that there is a mental war being fought in an intellectual arena and without brain power, we don't win this. Brain power is such a huge part of how a war is won, because the fact is, and I actually heard this from uh, somebody from uh, someone in intelligence who I interviewed for this uh, for the for this book. Uh, the quote that I heard, which I worked into the Rose Code and gave to one of my heroes, is intelligence is the most important commodity of any war, because it doesn't matter how many nuclear bombs you have how many arrows you have, how many sticks and stones you have to throw at the enemy. It means nothing if you don't know where to aim them. So knowledge, intelligence, where is the enemy going to be and can we be there to intercept them or to surprise them or to take advantage of that? You don't, if you don't know where to aim your weapons, you're, you're hamstrung, you are in the dark. So that is why intelligence is the most important commodity in any war that has ever been fought back to the caveman days. And so that's one of the reasons I think that Bletchley Park is important to talk about in World War II is how brain power, 
helped win this war. And a lot of that brain power was female. So World War II is huge. Mm-hmm. And you could, I studied for an entire year in a course. I studied. Some, some would say you're relatively expert at <laughs> World War at, II history. But I studied only D-Day. Okay. You know, and like you could spend an entire year on just <laughs> Like that's wild. So to to tackle like so many different aspects mm. of World War II is really challenging. And I think that's probably a layer to why Bletchley Park history and then the women that are there, that history gets lost just because World War II is huge. huge. Yeah, that's a big topic. It's huge. Um, but at the same time, I think there is a deep need to show students that at, in wartime, women have been integral to the success right. in that war. And we don't have in war, we do not have, you know, this like superhero that comes through and wins the war. It is the small efforts of a lot of different people that collectively, collectively doing the daily grind, small mm-hmm. breakthroughs to, to help you know, win, win the war overall. Yeah. Captain America is not a historical person. Really? <laughs> oh, shoot. Neither was Rosie the Riveter, but she makes the state standards. Um, so- <laughs> there is flaws everywhere. Ah! <laughs> so I asked Kate Quinn to tell me a little bit about why she thinks this history doesn't quite make it into most secondary okay. history classes. Great. And this is what she said. Well, I think there is, as I said, I think there is a narrative that it's more about the battles because that's, you know, the broad stroke picture is, you know, how the big troop movements moving around. So the whole idea of let's focus on a lot of, you know, weird college students and, you know, university grads who are scratching away at pencils and green huts in the middle of the countryside um, might not be more than a footnote, just simply in terms of, you know, it's like, oh, by the way, um, intelligence is being broken at Bletchley Park by code breakers. And that's a big part of the war. And maybe that's all you'd hear about it. And it's also the fact, you know, that um, when in history classes, you're trying to cram so much in that, you know, it's the kind of thing, it can feel so relentlessly chronological. I remember in the words of a comedian I liked that if you drop your pencil on the floor and, you know, come back up, you've missed a decade in the chronology. <laughs> you know, so there's so much to be covered. I mean, they call it a world war for a reason. Pretty much the entire world was involved in this conflict. So how can you teach everything? You know, you can't. So there does tend to be a focus on the broad strokes, which tends to mean troop movements, movements of armies, the major personalities of the various military branches and heads of state. And these tend to be the things that are focused on. And then of course, you know, uh, there tends to be more of a focus on, you know, white nations and also on men as the movers and shakers, just simply because that's the dominant narrative of history because those are the people who are mostly in charge. And that has been the case for a very long time, which is why now we have Black History Month. Now we have Women's History Month. These are, it's intended to redress some of that imbalance and talk about some of the folks whose achievements don't tend to make it in quite so much. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I think also, you know, I've been really grateful for historical fiction writing like yours because um, it's a really great way with the volume of things that history teachers need to teach. It's a really great way for English teachers to support the humanities and um, and to really be engaged in what's going on in, in history class, teaching, reading, teaching literacy, but giving them something that's like on topic for their history class to read. Um, and I've definitely done that with some of some of the great books that are coming out now. So I really hope our listeners will engage with your book because I think, you know, for the authors that we've read, our podcast isn't nearly long enough to <laughs> go into everything that you you talk about. And so I really hope people will be inspired and, and pick up your book. Um, I found it on Audible. It can also be found on Amazon, correct? Is there yep. anywhere else they can find your book? Well, I always uh, love to point the way toward independent booksellers because I really think that, you know, they're great. That's a great place to, you know, support your local business. So you probably have a local indie bookstore that you love. Go, you can order a copy through them by all means. My local indie is called Warwick's in San Diego. So if you order through them, W-A-R-W-I-C-K-S, you can find them online. They do have signed copies. But you can also look online on, an, on a website called bookshop.org, and that will literally hook you up with buying a copy, whatever book you like, through whatever local independent bookstore has it. So that's a great way to support indies if you um, don't have a local store that you like to favor. Oh, that's great. I love that. <laughs> I'm not in the book world enough, so I, I appreciate the, the details on that. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me today. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we sign off here? No, I would just say that, you know, a huge thank you to history teachers and English teachers, you know, for doing the work that you do. I had some superb history teachers in my life. Uh, I remember some wonderful ones, especially in high school, who did so much to, you know, give me, you know, manic interests in this historical period or that historical period. So really, you're doing wonderful work. Please keep it up. And I know that teachers this year have had a very hard time of it. So I really hope you're all hanging in there. You know, stay safe, stay sane, stay healthy. I mean, it's pretty amazing that she was able to capture so many different lenses and yeah. represent so many different women that did do all of these jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And give each sort of like this distinct character. Um, I think, I think it's really powerful and I'm just excited to include more examples of the role that women played in right. World War II. They're there. They're there. Use them. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Kelsey. This was great. Oh, thank you, Brooke. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. We'll see you next time. Woohoo! <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.